On this podcast, I profile people who have impacted culture and history, and they were all gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. My name is Frank Howard, and welcome to Gay of the Day. Genius and madness sometimes go hand in hand. Today's gate was a musical wizard, a record producer who, in the 1960s, was responsible for some of the strangest pop music ever recorded. His bizarre recording methods and idiosyncratic nature earned him the moniker, the British Phil Spector. Subsequent events would prove he and Phil Spector would have something tragic in common. Today's Gay of the Day, composer and record producer, Joe Meek. Now, this is one for the audiophiles. Joe Meek is a legend and kind of a hero of mine. Now, I say hero because I'm always on the lookout for people who create music that is different than the rest, or at least aspires to be something different. He produced hundreds of records, many of them hits, many failures, but not one of these records is boring, and all of them bear the unmistakable Joe Meek sound. Born Robert Meek, his father always called him Joe, after his dead brother, Uh, and raised on a farm in Gloucestershire. At a young age, he displayed sissy tendencies, and the soft-spoken Joe was more likely to strut around in his grandmother's clothing than to do chores. He also loved to build things and started tinkering with the electronics. At age nine, he had built his own television set and rigged a wireless sound system in the family orchard to frighten birds away. After serving in the RAF, he became a sound engineer at the BBC. For years, he was an invaluable tech wizard and would come up with off-the-wall ideas and ingenious solutions to problems. He soon grew tired of other producers taking credit for his work, and with the few friendships he had made with various studio musicians, chiefly keyboardist Jeff Goddard, Joe Meek struck out and started his own record label. In 1959, he opened his own recording studio, renting the top two floors of a building from an old lady who ran a leather goods shop at street level. He immediately started drilling holes in the walls and removing carpeting. Meek would walk from room to room and instinctively know 
which room of the flat had the best acoustics for the desired effect he imagined. Guitar in the rear bedroom, singer in the foyer, string section scattered about the house on various floors, drums crammed in the loo. Every player wearing headphones with all wires leading to the dining room on the top floor where Joe and his control panels were. Within weeks, he had wired the entire apartment for sound, transforming the top two floors into a giant microphone. It was from this home studio that for the next seven years, he created hundreds of records and over 30 hit singles. He handpicked a roster of artists and signed a distribution deal with EMI. The acts on his label had one commonality. They were all men. Most of them cutie pies. Indeed, Joe Meek often chose looks over talent. He only had one female singer under contract. The rest were slim and boyish lookers. Joe Meek signed bodybuilder Ricky Wayne to a contract simply because he'd whacked off to some of his photos. Luckily, Wayne had a decent singing voice. Joe constructed an act where, at the end, Wayne would slowly peel his clothes off and, clad only in a loincloth, flex his muscles. Joe Meek fell madly in love with a German guitar player named Heinz Burt. Meek ordered him to bleach his hair and shorten his name to simply Heinz. Heinz could not sing, but that didn't matter. Joe Meek put everything he had into Heinz, doing tons of promotion and arranging a tour, during which audiences pelted Heinz with cans of baked beans, Heinz also being the brand name of Britain's top-selling baked bean. Meek's efforts eventually paid off, and Heinz had a big hit with the song Just Like Eddie. The only way for Joe Meek to have Heinz in his mouth was to open a can of beans. Poor Joe never did get to sample Heinz's Bratwurst. Uh, That was Joe's landlady. She was constantly complaining about the strange noises coming from Joe's flat and would ruin takes by banging on the ceiling below with a broomstick. The song that put Joe Meek on the map was Telstar. The song's futuristic opening achieved by Joe recording his toilet flushing and then playing it backwards. It's a sea of unearthly sound effects, electronics and harps, all set to a galloping rhythm. Released in 1962, it's the first British single to hit the top spot in the U.S., beating the Beatles by a full year, and was a smash hit around the world. It remains one of the best-selling instrumentals of all time.
There's that landlady again. By this time, Joe Meek had been arrested for cottaging. For those of you who don't know, cottaging is cruising public bathrooms for sex. Joe tried to pick up an undercover cop and was busted in a sting. Later, he would record what is thought to be the first gay pop single called Do You Come Here Often? from 1966. Up until then, there were only a couple of songs that suggested homosexuality. Primarily two John Lennon-penned Beatles songs. Do You Want to Know a Secret? and You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. But that they are about gayness is mere speculation. Incidentally, Joe Meek famously passed on the Beatles, stating, Why would anyone bother? Do You Come Here Often predates any of the handful of Kinks songs that vaguely address gayness, and predates the more explicitly gay Donovan song, I'll Try for the Sun, by half a year. Do You Come Here Often has two gay guys who are cruising and exchanging catty put-downs. Joe Meek put this on a B-side, lulling the listener into thinking, It was just an instrumental, and knowing most would lift the needle off the record by the two-and-a-half-minute mark. Sneaky clean. But those who kept listening eventually heard this. Do you come here often? Only when the pirate ships go here. Me too. (laughs) Well, I see pajama-style shirts are in there. Well, pajamas are out. As far as I'm concerned, anyway. Who cares? Well, I know of a few people that do. Yes, you would. Wow. He's still coming now. What do you think? Hmm. Mine's all right, but I don't like the look of yours. Well, I must be off. (laughs) Yes, you're not looking so good. Cheer. I'll see you down the dilly. Not if I see you first, you won't. Do Come Here Often is an example of gay men flexing their forked tongues, training for when they encounter homophobia, when their verbal skills will come in handy. Then there's my favorite Joe Meek song, Johnny Remember Me, from 1961. Written by Meek and Jeff Goddard, it's my favorite death disc. A death disc is a song about a dead lover. In the song, the narrator's dead girlfriend keeps calling to him from the afterlife, imploring him not to forget her in her ghostly soprano. Well, it's hard to believe, I know But I hear her singing in the sign of the wind Blowing in the treetops Way above me Joe Meek believed in ghosts and the spirit world and would regularly hold seances primarily to contact the ghost of his idol singer Buddy Holly For years, Meek hoped his inventive recording equipment was sufficient enough to hear voices of the dead and would often spend the night in cemeteries, 
tape rolling. In 1961, Joe Meek recorded a series of singles under the name The Blue Men. These are experimental in the extreme. These radical recordings were later released under Meek's own name as the album I Hear a New World. Record producers today still cannot figure out how Meek achieved these sounds. American listeners may know this next one. Have I the Right from 1963. It was his last big American hit. It was written by Meek and performed by the Honeycombs. For the recording, he had 12 guys standing on the staircase leading up to the attic. A guy perched on each stair, all of which were miked. He instructed them to march to the beat. And when the song reached the chorus, to stomp up and down in time as loud as they could. Have I the right to kiss you? You know I'll always miss you. I've loved you from the very start. Come right back. I just can't bear it. I'm not too and I love you, Sherry. By 1966, the hits had dried up, and Meek was broke. His former partner, Jeff Goddard, was suing him, claiming he had written Have I the Right. Meek had yet to make a dime off his biggest hit, Telstar. Royalties were being withheld because a French composer had brought a plagiarism lawsuit against Meek. Former boyfriends were blackmailing him, Homosexuality was still illegal, and if Meek didn't pay them off, he was facing some serious jail time. Meek wasn't sleeping. He was hearing voices and acting paranoid. He thought someone who wanted to steal his recording secrets or to frame him had placed bugs around his apartment. He tore the place apart looking for them. He slept with a shotgun under his bed. He had confiscated the gun from Heinz years earlier. Joe Meek used that gun to murder his landlady and then kill himself. Three weeks after his death, that French composer lost the Telstar case. Does genius equal demise? Not always, but the demon of inspiration Meek possessed was powerful enough to create some of the most memorable discs of the 1960s and to drive him to murder-suicide. It's hard to believe it.
Today's Gay of the Day, record producer Joe Meek. Gay of the Day's theme is composed and performed by Swick. That's C-W-I-O-K. Follow Gay of the Day on the usual suspects of social media. Uh, my Twitter account is called Gay of the Day Blog. And the Instagram page is called Gay of the Day Podcast. Facebook page is just called Gay of the Day. Especially on the Instagram and Facebook pages, I post photos and links and songs and clips that correspond to these podcasts. So check them out. Also, if you're listening to this and you like this podcast, please recommend it to a friend. My name is Frank Howard. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.